Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, AIDS microbicide and the value of fright. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Gary Marcus, who will discuss clues. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Pretty good. It's bright and early here. <laughs> what time is it uh, down in Chicago? Uh, it's hard to say sometimes because the sun rarely shines in the Windy City. <laughs> oh. The wind just blows the sun right out of here. <laughs> but I feel like from the middle of the country, I have a sense of the pulse of the nation. Okay. There's still hope for America then. <laughs> we can only hope. So it turns out microbicides don't always work. Microbicides don't always work. Especially um, vaginal microbicides to treat AIDS. Well, you have to apply them in the right location. <laughs> Otherwise, putting it on your hair is no... So, uh, unfortunately, AIDS has a very high ability to mutate, and there's a lot of antiretroviral resistance that occurs with some of these microbicide treatments that they're working on. So, it turns out that women actually have a higher instance of getting the HIV virus. But one of the interesting paradoxes that has come out is even though these viruses become drug resistant very early, it turns out that it offers protection for the guys. <laughs> Good news for us. <laughs> the issue here is the retroviral resistance. Researchers at UCLA led by David Wilson are trying to figure out what are some of the parameters or the environments that cause this to happen and they're using various computer models to enhance the HIV treatment process. Those are very sexy computer models. <laughs> it's so sexy that this was reported in our very favorite journal. Oh, you can't beat this journal, especially for this kind of work. <laughs> the proceedings. Of the National Academy of Sciences. PNAS. Well, you know, that story has pretty much terrified me, I think, Frank. <laughs> in fact, so much so that I'm showing my disgust. <laughs> Are you frightened? <laughs> I'm very frightened, in fact. And when you're afraid, generally your face displays that, right? You're at least to the dark side, right? <laughs> I can fear the anger. <laughs> you have to learn how to control the anger. <laughs> Otherwise, the dark side will overwhelm you. Or is it the green side now? <laughs> the, we can only hope that the one to save us all. <laughs> but it turns out that researchers have been wondering why humans actually display their emotions on their face. Consciously or unconsciously? Uh, subconsciously or in part also consciously, right? Right. So when you're afraid or you're feeling disgust, right. why? is it beneficial mm -hmm. and for a long time researchers have thought that it was mainly as a communication signal for other people around you to know right what you're feeling like you're pissed <laughs> <laughs> or you're fearful <laughs> or angry <laughs> New research done by a neuroscientist, Adam Anderson, and his graduate student, Joshua Suskind, at the University of Toronto, decided to test this. They tested a bunch of students and gave them faces of different emotions and asked them to mimic these faces. And what they found was that, in fact, mimicking the faces actually leads to changes in their physiological abilities. So uh, mimicking fear or anger, does that change your physiological state? So what they found, for example, is that if you mimic disgusted and you scrunch up your face, this has the effect of limiting vision 
collision and decreasing airflow, and that might actually be beneficial if you're disgusted by something and you want to keep stuff out of your system. Oh, wow. Whereas if you're frightful, your eyes open up wide, and it also leads to an increase in your peripheral vision, mm -hmm. which might be beneficial if you're looking for a predator or something. So in fact, the faces that you display might actually be an evolutionary adaptation to help you survive. Does right. it also happen after you drink caffeine? <laughs> well, you got to be afraid of the Coca-Cola man coming after you. <laughs> so uh, perhaps not that surprising that your facial expressions might be actually useful rather than communication signal, but mm -hmm. still very fascinating. So I've always wondered what Bush's facial expressions really mean. <laughs> I don't think he controls them. <laughs> uh, it's probably Carl Rove pulling the strings from somewhere. Anyway, so this is recent work published in Nature Neuroscience. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grok Science Show you're listening to. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Gary Marcus will join us to discuss Cluj. So stay tuned. to the Grok's Science Show. Well, we often like to think of our brains as highly functioning, well-designed biological machines capable of solving any problem. But the reality may be far different. Evolution may have simply cobbled together the construction of our brains in a piecemeal fashion to fit the immediate needs of survival. The fact that it works at all may be a testament to the power of evolution. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Gary Marcus. Professor Marcus is a professor of psychology at New York University and the director of the NYU Infant Learning Center, author of numerous journal articles and books, including The Birth of the Mind. His most recent work, Cluj, The Haphazard Construction of the Human Mind, discusses this issue for a general audience. Uh, Dr. Marcus, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure, and I think this is really a very fascinating book, but I'm sure a lot of people out there are wondering, uh, what is a kluge? A kluge is a clumsy or inelegant solution to a problem. It's something that gets the job done, but not necessarily very well. You can think of MacGyver, Rube Goldberg, duct tape and rubber bands. You get the job done, but not in the way you design it if you had enough time and forethought. Yeah, this is a term I understand that's uh, drawn from engineering. Exactly. It's an old, old engineer slang term. And how does this manifest in biology? Uh, well, I think you see it all over the place. I mean, as you were saying, evolution is, is about meeting the immediate needs, and evolution doesn't have forethought. And so sometimes it comes up with solutions that just barely get the job done. A good example is the human spine. It's sort of the poster child of my book. Um, the human spine allows us to be upright. It freed up our hands, and that made a big difference in evolution. But it's basically like a flagpole that's supporting the entire weight of your upper body, including our unusually heavy skull and brain. I mean, much better might have been, say, four columns with shock absorbers. And while we're at it, why have two? 
two legs instead of three for a tripod. We have this very unstable system. It's not a good solution, but from evolution's perspective, it's cheap. It didn't take many genes to change from a four-legged creature to a two-legged creature. So in a sense, evolution is really just adapting what's already at hand to meet a need. Exactly. There's a famous quote that evolution is like a tinkerer, and the point of the book is to figure out the tinkering that went on in the human mind and to look at some of the clumsiness that comes as a result. Another famous example, of course, is the panda's thumb, which is sort of an ad hoc solution as well. Exactly. That was Stephen Jay Gould made that popular, and part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to take Stephen Jay Gould's way of looking at evolution and apply it to evolutionary psychology. So a lot of evolutionary psychology has been about sort of why is the mind optimal in this respect or that respect, or you know what would be the optimal thing for our ancestors to have done. But as Gould points out in Darwin before him, evolution doesn't always create the optimal thing. Evolution is about what we call local maxima, sort of the best local solution, but you can imagine there's something deep off in the, further in the mountain range that would be better and evolution doesn't have the foresight to come up with that better solution. So the book is really about the cases in the evolution of the mind where we have something like the pen thumb. I see. And what are some of the more uh, striking examples that one finds in the construction of the mind? I think the first and foremost example is the structure of human memory, which compared to computer memory just doesn't work very well. So computer memory, you store something once, it stays there forever. If you want to erase it, you can do that. Everything goes in a particular location. It's very easy for a programmer to find the information that they're looking for. Human memory is nowhere near that good, so you can't learn a phone number by hearing it once. Sometimes you have to hear it five times, and people have trouble remembering where their keys are, remembering where their parking space is, and, and even more extreme, one, one fact that I give in my book is that Six percent of all skydiving fatalities are people that simply forgot to pull the ripcord. So in a memory system where you forget to pull the ripcord is one where there's probably some room for improvement. Uh, and why is it that the uh, memory is constructed in this manner? Well, I think early on in evolution, going way back to like snails or even some simpler multicellular creature, evolution has built our memories to be fast. So, you know, you see a lion and immediately you get the idea that you should run away. And that's tuned us to having good measures of sort of overall tendencies, but it's not necessarily tuned very well for precision, to, for remembering specific facts. When you, for example, get to a court and people are required to do eyewitness testimony, that's something very different from what virtually all of our ancestors ever had to do going back to, you know, early fish and so forth. Our memories are designed for these general tendencies, but not so that we can remember very specific details. And how does one explain then these uh, savants who have very specific type of abilities then? practice turns out to be the answer. So the, the saving grace of our memory system is that we can do what's called chunking. So you can, for example, if you're trying to memorize phone numbers, you can recognize the 212 as a chunk, and then you don't have to recognize those as three digits anymore, but as a unit. And if we practice things, we can build up larger and larger units. It's sort of a clumsy solution, but, but it gets the job done. So it, it's a, itself a kludge, and savants just spend a lot of time memorizing particular things, and they get good at it. You don't have to be a savant to do that. When I was a kid, I used to read baseball statistics over and over again, and People called me the walking encyclopedia of baseball. And it's not because I have a brilliant memory. I just spent a lot of time studying those particular things. Still, even then, I wasn't anywhere near as good as a machine where you could just sort of download the information once. One that I found particularly fascinating was uh, the fact that we have these belief systems that lead us to uh, credulous ideas in a way. That's right. I mean, we're, once you have that kind of memory in place where you can't systematically search it like in a computer, you're, you're sort of set up for a fall. So one of the things that happens is that we have confirmation bias. And what that means is we notice the data that fits with our theories. And we don't notice data that goes against our theories. And so people get very convinced that whatever they believe is right. We're sort of, as a species, set up for, for political and religious polarization because everybody thinks that they're always right and everybody else is always wrong. And that comes partly from the structure of our memory, where the structure of our memory just makes it easier to find 
data that supports your own theory and harder for you to remember the things that don't match your theory. Whereas in a machine, that would be easy to calculate. For, for us, it's not so easy. I think it comes out in all of the sort of political um, hostility that people have toward, towards one another. It's just too easy for people to kind of get locked into their own position. And it's especially true in the age of the Internet, where everybody can find a website that gives them fuel for their own position and not bother to go to a website that might give them sort of a different perspective. I mean, it's out there. The alternative perspectives are out there, but we're not wired to automatically go looking for balanced information. So in this Internet era, especially, you just get more and more polarization. People get angrier and angrier at each other. It also happens at a more domestic front. So, like, if you ask two people that share an apartment, what percentage of the dishes do you do? One person will tell you 60%, the other person will say 70%. The numbers will never add up to 100%. There'll always be something higher than that. And that's because our memories give us sort of unequal, unrepresentative data. You remember what you did. You don't remember what your roommate did. Worse than that, your brain doesn't compensate and say, well, I wonder if the data that I'm looking at are representative. So it leads to conflict at the domestic level and at the sort of international level. Uh, given the fact that we're predisposed to this biological, how do we compensate for that? Um, well, there are lots of different things that one can do. I mean, for memory, there are lots of tricks like the chunking so that if you want to remember a particular kind of data, then you can learn little pieces and practice till you get bigger pieces and so forth. One simple thing that sounds almost trivial but is really powerful is to just always look at alternative hypotheses. So this is what we train people to do in graduate school, but anybody can do it. And if you just practice it over and over again, whenever you evaluate anything that you think is important, you say, well, if I were coming at this from a different perspective, how would I think about that? That turns out to be a very valuable tool. And if people can do that, they can get along better because they have some more understanding about where other people are coming from. So there are tricks like that. There are a whole bunch of those that I talk about at the end of the book. Another good one is how to achieve your goal. So there's a kind of separation in our brains between older systems that work by reflex and newer systems that work in a sort of more abstract way. So the newer systems can say, it would be great if I watched my weight. But that doesn't often translate into reality because in reality you see the chocolate cake and you can't help yourself. So how do you deal with that? What you have to do is to build up reflexes that you can do automatically without thinking. So you translate the goal of watching your weight into things like, well, I see that in a particular scenario when I'm with a lot of people, I stop paying attention to what I eat. So what I'll do is when I'm in a crowd and the restaurant brings out the dessert menu, I'll get up and go to the washroom and I'll come back when people are done with the dessert or something like that. You practice that kind of reflex and then you can better achieve your goals. This also brings up issues in the book, of course, is that we do tend to have a um, tendency for self-defeating choices in some That's right, because we have these short-term and long-term systems. The quintessence of being a human being is that we're smart enough to plan for the long-term future, but we're often dumb enough to blow away those plans in the short term. So if somebody says, I want to get an A in this class this semester, but then Halo 3 comes out and they spend three weeks playing the game and they don't actually make progress towards achieving the goal. Well, Halo 3 is fun. <laughs> Halo 3 is fun, and there's nothing wrong with, with playing video games, but we do end up investing a lot of time in things that don't necessarily make us happy in the long term. So television, there's some very nice data on this. People that watch a lot of television, they get a short-term pleasure out of it. They're not happier in the long run than people that watch a little bit of television. And what's happening is the short-term system says, well, I'm really tired. What's an easy thing to do? I'll watch television. And they don't think about the opportunity cost. They could be spending that time doing something else, practicing their guitar or hanging out with their friends or whatever that they might have more long-term payoff for. Another issue, of course, which uh, you've looked at for quite some time is uh, how our brains are constructed for language. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, there too, you see the, sort of the signs of the kludge. So one, one thing that's clumsy about language is just the way that we use the same tube for breathing and swallowing um, as for talking. And it's probably pretty well known that that leads um, people occasionally to choking. But maybe less well known is that actually makes us pretty slow communicators. We could communicate a lot faster if we had something like an iPod in our throat and we could make 44,000 sounds a second like an iPod can. So like, we communicate much slower than computers do. So that's one thing that, that's clumsy and from a design perspective. It's just, there's no advantage in it. Another thing that I think is really striking is the way that language is ambiguous. So I give you a sentence like, the spy shot the cop with a revolver. And that could either mean that the cop had the revolver or the spy had the revolver. And there's, again, there's no reason why if you designed a language from scratch that you would build it that way. Instead, you might want to build it like a computer language or like mathematics, where you have things like parentheses that can indicate what things go with what other things. And then you wouldn't have these kinds of ambiguities. But language just never came up with that. Uh, the other system that's brought up in the book is the pleasure system. Pleasure system is, is, is maybe the cludiest of them all. One of the things about, I, mean, lot, I could go on for a while about the pleasure system, but what, one thing about the pleasure system is that we spend a lot of time trying to trick it. So you can understand from like a design standpoint why a creature would want to know whether it's happy or whether it's sad and whether something gives it pleasure or not, because that gives us goals to steer towards. But then we have this whole extra layer of like rationalization so that we try to trick ourselves. If we're not happy, we try to fool ourselves into being happy. What would be better, I think, would have been if we could have sort of been like Buddhist robots who take in the moment, respond to it, and they say, well, things are going well, this allows me to do this or that, or they're not going well, so I'll do these other things. But somehow we're stuck with this pain when things don't go well that really isn't necessarily very helpful. Anxiety is like that, too. I mean, people burn up their a lot of energy. It doesn't necessarily get them to make progress. Uh, well, some might note that these kludge elements, perhaps, are the things that truly make us human in a way. Well, certainly some of them do, and then there's a lot of, when nature gives us lemons, we can make lemonade. So I think that poetry, for example, comes out partly from the sort of erratic way that our memory works. And so, I mean, I think given that we've got these systems, by all means, we should take advantage of them. But on the other hand, these systems, for example, mean that eyewitness testimony is, you know, dangerously unreliable, and they mean that people are often stereotyping one another and so forth. And so I think the the wisdom comes from recognizing the kludges that give us pain and the kludges that can lead to something fun. And, we, and and trying to work with the ones that lead us into trouble. Given the fact that this kludge is sort of such an innate part of our biology, is it the case that some people will try and exploit kludge-like nature of the brain in other people? Sure. I mean, advertisers do that all the time. Spin doctors do that all the time. I mean, if you're selling a soap, you, you want to call it 99% pure and not 1% impure, right? Because if you call it 99% pure, it sounds great. If you call it 1% impure, that makes people think about impurity, even though it's only 1%, and that leads to a different reaction. So the whole job of a spin doctor or a marketing person is to figure out how to frame something. It's the same product, but you're associating it with something that people like. So you put the car with the girl. It's not like people will get the girl when they, they buy the car, but their brain is, is so naive that it sort of works as if it, that was what's going on. So definitely there are lots of people that try to take advantage of our, our inner kludges. Uh, how do you think this particular insight gives rise to our, an investigation of the neurobiology of the brain? Well, mm-hmm. I think it says that people should probably not start with the assumption that everything that the brain does is optimal, because from a behavioral perspective, it's not. I mean, sometimes we're rational, sometimes we're not, sometimes our memories work, and sometimes they don't. And in neuroscience, people are very obsessed lately with this idea of, of human beings as being Bayesian, sort of reaching optimality, and they're trying to figure out how neurons do that. And maybe that 
in some ways individual neurons are optimal, but in some ways they're not. They're, they're noisy, they're not particularly efficient chemically speaking and so forth. And if we were just looking for brain circuits that were optimal, we would, we would be looking for a fantasy. I mean, if, if we're going to really understand how the brain does what, what the mind does, we have to recognize that the, the mind has its limitations and find neural hardware that matches that. Some might, of course, argue that non-optimalness of the brain allows us to adapt to a number of situations much more readily. Well, I guess one of the more optimal things about our minds is the fact that they're plastic, that they allow us to acquire new information and so forth. But even there, I don't think that they're totally optimal. So, for example, why does it take us you know, six months to learn a times table. I mean, you could have imagined more efficient systems than that. So it's another case where we have a learning system that's good enough, but not necessarily the ideal system. So it's incredibly useful that we can learn things, but that doesn't mean that we have a perfect system for learning things and that there, there couldn't be room for improvement there. I'm curious, how did you actually become interested in this particular concept and how it applies to the brain? Well, you and I talked a few years ago about my, my last book, The Birth of the Mind, which is about how genes build the brain. And it was really out of that book that, that Kluge came, because as I was writing that book, I realized the extent to which evolution is really stingy, basically, that evolution just always builds its new stuff on top of old stuff. And it doesn't, doesn't have the foresight to say, well, we could do this in a better way. And so that's what Darwin called descent with modification. And after a while, I realized that even though people recognize the implications of that in evolutionary biology, they really weren't catching the implications of that for evolutionary psychology, for how the mind works. Nobody was really looking at the pandas' thumbs and so forth of the human mind, and I realized that was you know, something that needed to be done, and that's why I wrote Kluge. So do you think that's becoming more appreciated now? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm getting good reaction to the book. and I mean, it's a kind of concept I think a lot of people say, oh, now that you say it, it absolutely makes sense. Uh, do you have any plans for the future work in this area? Um, well, I'm looking especially at how language is a kludge, basically. I'm, in my day job, I'm, I'm trying to do experimental work to look at what are the pieces of language. How does language build on stuff that came before humans? So most of the neural circuitry for language is actually much older than human beings and much older than language itself. And so it's, it's a really interesting trick, not yet understood, how it is that evolution did cobble together a language system out of basically a primate brain. There, there are some communication systems, but there's nothing with the sophistication of human language. So it's, it's what we call a singularity. It's like the elephant's trunk. There's nothing else around that's like it. So it's a great mystery when evolution cobbles something together um, that's so different. But on the other hand, as you start to look at the neuroimaging and so forth, what's clear is that a lot of the pieces that are involved in language have multiple functions. So there are circuits, for example, that are involved in sequencing in other animals, even if they're not involved in linguistic sequencing. So other animals still have to sequence a set of events in order to achieve a goal or to lift up an object and so forth. So some of the parts of the brain that seem to have evolved for that are getting adapted and, and used in language. I see, and so co-opted in, in, in the That's right. It's all about co-option. Kluges are all about co-option. Evolution is all about co-option. That's really like the essential idea of evolution is, is that things get co-opted. So wings, for example, probably evolved originally as devices that were just there to exchange heat. And the lens of the eye originally evolved as something that was also actually about heat and, and detecting heat. So things just get reused for new purposes, and that's why they're kludgy. I mean, our spine was originally there to support the weight of a four-legged creature, which distributed the load, and it got co-opted into the purpose of, of supporting a two-legged creature. And co-option works, but it doesn't necessarily work efficiently, and so there's, there's always kind of a little friction around the edges. It really makes for an interesting study of the human brain. It does indeed. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Marcus, I do want to thank you very much for joining us and talking about uh, your new book, which is, of course, Kluge, the haphazard construction of the human mind. Thanks very much. 
And you're just listening to Gary Marcus discussing Cluj. This is the Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. Well, bless my soul, what's wrong with me? I'm itching like a man on a fuzzy tree. My friends say I'm acting wild as a bug. I'm in love. I'm all shook up. Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my hands are shaking and my knees are weak. I can't seem to stand on my own two feet. Who do you think of when you have such luck? I'm in love. I'm all shook up. Ooh, Ready to play the game? It is the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic elegantly designed or a kluge. So, for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know elegantly designed or a kluge and maybe a little reason why. Dr. Marcus, you ready to play the game? I'm ready to play the game. Person ready no- as I'll ever be, anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, we thank you for sticking around. And person number one is elegantly designed or kluge, Paris Hilton. Uh, that that seems like an easy one. I'm going to go with Kluge. I think that she's someone who almost entirely lets her short-term interests ahead of her long-term interests, although the fascinating thing is the way that she's kind of made a career niche out of doing that. So maybe the laugh will be on us in the end. <laughs> uh, number two is the Senator Barack Obama. He's as bad as elegant as they come. He's very much in control of, of, of his short-term systems. He's, he's very poised. He's, he's always focused. He's, yeah, he's about as elegant as they come. Uh, number three is the filmmaker Uwe Boll. Resident Evil or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not familiar with Uwe, I'm afraid. The, the games themselves, I think, often are, are, are very elegantly designed. There's a lot of, um, and people cast aspersions on video games, but there's a lot of effort put into them basically to take advantage of our inner kludge. So the designers, for example, make each level a little bit harder, and that keeps your dop- dopamine system going. So I don't know about the movies themselves. I hear that the movies are kind of kludges. They're, they're co-options of a technique that, that is very effective when it's interactive, and they may not translate well on screen. Well, certainly not the case for most of his films, anyway. <laughs> uh, number four is the Apple co-founder, Steve Jobs. He's a pretty elegant one, too. I mean, he's, he's all about redesigning things, and he's all about not cluding things together. So, like, the iPod, you know, there were other MP3 players out there, but they were all sort of built on other kinds of foundations and, and just incrementally modified. And the iPod was really an attempt to start over and say, you know, what would be the right interface for this? And it's still better than its competitors, even, you know, five or six years later. So Steve Jobs definitely gets some elegance points. And finally, number five, the President of the United States, George Bush. Oh, too easy. I, I actually um, use him as an example in my talks. I say there are a lot of people that think that the mind is optimally designed, but, and then I put up a slide um, with, with our, our President, popped a piece of chewing gum in his mouth. And, and I'm, I'm not going to give him a lot of elegance points. So the real question is about the voters that reelected him. Uh, that's the other thing that I always say. Is, you know, it's not just the President. I mean, he got reelected. So there are many people out there who may think that their decisions at the time were kind of kludgy and they may regret them. Mm. All right, Dr. Marcus, I do want to thank you very much for sticking around talking about your book, Kluge, The Haphazard Construction of the Human Mind. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, and now it's time for the answer to this week's Question of the Week. And here with us right now is the star, Sean Connery. Yes, that's right, my friend. You will understand exactly what a star is. I'm the star! 
So, do you actually want to know what happens to stars when they burn and die? Are you still there? Indeed. Well, I'll have to destroy you then. Much like these brown dwarf stars, when they collapse, they burn all their hydrogen and helium, and they're burning the last remnants of their fuel. Much like the crappy actors that still exist. Not like me. I am the red giant of a star. Unlike the brown dwarfs. Like the governor himself, Schwarzenegger. Ah, crap bigger than him. And that's what happens to stars when they become brown dwarfs. Well, thanks a lot, Mr. Connery. And the day is mine! And that's all for this week's episode of the Grok Science Show. Uh, we'll be back next week with more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at the Grok Science Show, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>